the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Garbage day at the Rice's. Takes on a whole new meaning when you're home all the time. Still the worst day of the week, but that's a whole other subject. James Blind is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Dan Rice, hey, appreciate the use of your office. Uh, today on the program, we're going to talk with Darren Campbell. He's the Director of Marketing, Media, and Government Affairs at Radio Cab. We're going to talk about transportation and delivery options during this pandemic that may surprise you and what they're doing to keep their passengers safe. We'll also talk with Tim McGrath. He's um, the biographer and author of James Monroe, A Life. It's published by Random House. It's the first biography on the fifth president of the United States in more than a decade or decades, if I remember correctly. Anyway, it's a fascinating look at uh, James Monroe, who served in more uh, positions in the federal government than any other president in U.S. history. We'll talk with uh, Tim McGrath about that later this hour and uh, looking forward to just that. Also want to remind you that No Safe Spaces, the documentary we've been talking about, is presenting a special event tonight to which you are cordially invited. Oh, there's a bug flying, right? It landed on my paper. I'm going to pretend that I'm not as freaked out as I actually am, but I, I am. It was a big bug. It landed on my notes. That's never happened before in all of the years I've done radio. But again, a broadcast professional, I'm not going to let that shake me up, even though it's shaken me up. Well, I want to remind you that the creators of No Safe Spaces is coming to Facebook Live for an event this evening. It's called Not Allowed to Laugh, Free Speech and the Death of Comedy. That's tonight at 4 p.m. Pacific time. It's hosted by Eric Metaxas with the stars of No Safe Spaces, Adam Carolla and Dennis. Sorry, I was trying to get the bug at land anyway. <clears throat> Dennis Prager with special guest comedian Kareth Foster. It's a lively hour-long conversation about the state of comedy and free speech today and the challenges of making the movie No Safe Spaces. Now, you can log on to this event that starts at 4 o'clock, well, right about now, and then you can listen to the podcast of The Georgine Rice Show so you don't have to miss anything. Uh, anyway, you can um, st- see this uh, stream at uh, No Safe Spaces, um, the Facebook page, and there you're going to find um, all the information you need for Not Allowed to Laugh, Free Speech, and the Death of Comedy, tonight at 4, No Safe Spaces, Facebook page. So glad to mention that to you, although it does seem counterproductive. Please stop listening here so you can go elsewhere. We'll just set that aside because there is the podcast and you can pick everything up. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, the federal judge in the Michael Flynn case angered critics today, or actually yesterday, when he said he would not immediately rule on the Justice Department's decision to dismiss its criminal case against President Trump's former national security advisor. But D.C. District Court Judge Emmett Sullivan issued an order indicating that he would soon accept amicus um, curiae, or friend of the court submissions in the case, a move that drew immediate scrutiny and a planned objection on the ethical grounds or on ethical grounds. We will be filing a complaint against Sullivan, independent journalist Michael Chernwith, 
uh, wrote on Twitter on Tuesday evening, he is acting as a politician, not a judge. Well, Sullivan previously had refused to hear amicus briefs in the case, favorable or unfavorable. His order indicated that an upcoming scheduled hearing would clarify the parameters of who specifically could submit the briefs, which are submissions of non-parties that claim an interest in the case. Well, Sullivan specifically said he anticipated that Individuals and organizations will file briefs for the benefit of the courts as he prepares his response to the government's motion to dismiss the case. Judge Sullivan, who denied leave to file amicus briefs when he knew third parties would would have spoken favorably of Flint, of uh, Flynn, now solicits briefs critical of Flynn, Chernovich uh, pointed out. Uh, this is a violation of the judicial oath and applicable ethics rules. Well, Andrew McCarthy says that Michael Flynn has three important points on the case, and what's being reported is incomplete. Meanwhile, uh, Mr. Grinwall, he's uh, declassified the names of Obama officials who unmasked Flynn. Uh, Rand Paul has explained the the dust-up between him and Fauci on the Senate coronavirus hearing just a day or so ago, saying he's an extremely cautious person, referring to the doctor. Well, Senator Rand Paul said his tense exchange with uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci during a Senate hearing on Tuesday on the House on the U.S. response to the coronavirus outbreak was not personal, but that the leading member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force is not all-knowing. I don't question Dr. Fauci's motives, so Paul said, speaking to Martha McCallum on the story. I think he's a good person. I think he wants uh, what's best for the country, but he's an extremely cautious person. I don't think any of these experts are omniscient, Paul continued. I think they uh, have a basis of knowledge. Uh, But when you prognosticate about the future or advocate for things dramatic and drastic like closing all schools, you should uh, look at all the information. Well, during Tuesday's hearings, you may have um, may or may not have heard before the Senate Health Committee. Rand Paul challenged Fauci and argued that his words were not the end all when it came to the coronavirus pandemic. In one of the more tense moments on the in Tuesday's hearings, uh, Paul, the only U.S. senator to have had a confirmed case of COVID-19, said the public health response to the pandemic has been riddled with wrong predictions after wrong predictions and that Fauci should not be the one making decisions on issues outside his purview. Uh, Michigan Governor Whitmer has uh, cried uh, cries power grab after state GOP has challenged her emergency powers. And L.A. County's coronavirus stay-at-home order may drag on through month through July or August. According to officials, coronavirus will rage until it hits 60 to 70 percent of the population. Some scientists are predicting, and Governor uh, Whitmer's sports fans uh, are not um, going to be filling stadiums in the fall. They're not very happy with Michigan's governor. Meanwhile, GOP candidates backed by President Trump were outperforming expectations in two closely watched congressional special elections Tuesday night as former Navy combat pilot Mike Garcia inched Republicans closer toward retaking Democrat Katie Hill's California seat and Tom Tiffany easily prevailed in Wisconsin. Garcia grabbed a substantial early lead on Tuesday in the fight for the open U.S. House seat north of Los Angeles and the swing 25th district, giving California Republicans a chance to claim a Democrat-held congressional seat and the state for the first time in ni- since 1998. With 78% of uh, precincts reporting, Garcia was leading Democrat Christy Smith 55.9% to 44.1%. And the Democrats' $3 trillion... Sorry, Lent. <laughs> These temporary disruptions are my efforts to dispatch the insect that's flying around me as I'm attempting to maintain my professional status as a broadcaster, but it's really getting on my nerves, so please forgive me. 
<clears throat> as I was saying, Democrats' $3 trillion coronavirus relief bill extends stimulus checks to certain undocumented immigrants. Matthew McConaughey bemoans divisions over the coronavirus response, and California Democrats say 10-year rent relief plan is not a giveaway. It's a giveaway. It's all in how you say it, how you emphasize certain aspects. Well, the uh, CDC's director's bookshelf says a red hat has disappeared during remote testimony after social media speculation. Uh, It was in the background while he was giving his uh, testimony. Not clear what all of that is about. Um, Let's see. Byron York says the Flynn case was corrupt from the very start. He looks at how the uh, unrecorded original statements from Flynn had been edited and the original has not yet been seen by Flynn or his attorneys. And it just uh, gets stranger from there. You can find that story in the Washington Examiner. Andrew McCarthy says the issue has never been whether Obama knew or, of course, he knew, he points out. The issue is what exactly what it um, uh, what it is that he knew about. That is, was this a good faith investigation based on real evidence that Trump campaign was conspiring with the, with the Kremlin? Or was it partisan political spying and sabotage carried out under the guise of counterintelligence? David Harsony says that Democrats and their allies who like to pretend that President Obama only uh, his only scandalous act was wearing a tan suit are going to have to give account, spend the next few months gaslighting the public by focusing on the most feverish accusations against Obama. But the fact is that we already have more compelling evidence that the Obama administration engaged in misconduct than ever did, uh, than we ever did for opening the Russian collusion investigation. You'll find that story in National Review. And from Congressman Jim Jordan, he says the FBI's insurance policy was created to stop President Trump from winning. After the election, it changed to stop Americans from knowing the truth. That's why the Comey cabal went after Michael Flynn. That's a Twitter note. Meanwhile, a judge has put, the, uh, put up a roadblock to dropping the charges against Mr. Flynn. Well, more news and uh, information coming up in five o'clock hour. But up next, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to talk with Darren Campbell, Director of Marketing, Media and Government Affairs at Radio Cab. They're providing transportation and delivery options that you might not have thought of. They're advertisers associated with our stations. We want to make sure that you know the goods and services that are made available and what they're doing to protect the public. So Darren Campbell will be up next. Then we'll talk with Tim McGrath. He's the author of James Monroe, A Life. If you think you know the fifth president, you might be surprised to learn what you don't know. That's coming up at 4.30 in today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. i got to go. I've got a bug to try to dispatch. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, as many of you know, we've been highlighting some of our advertisers, those uh, who advertise on KPDQ and our sister stations in the Salem Cluster. And we're doing that again today to give us some perspective on how this pandemic is impacting local businesses and how we might benefit uh, from what they, uh, the goods and services they provide and how we might support those who advertise our stations as well. Joining us now is Darren Campbell. He is the Director of Marketing, Media, and Government Affairs at Radio Cab. We're going to talk about transportation and delivery options and whether or not we can feel safe and comfortable when we're riding in a cab. Darren Campbell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Georgine. How are you today? 
I'm doing pretty good. But before we start, I want to ask you, how are you and your family doing through this uh, this pandemic and sheltering in place? Well, you know, my family, I feel very fortunate that uh, that nobody in my family has has had to file for unemployment or walk those lines. Uh. Um, so we're very thankful. But but we also know that there's a lot of people out there struggling. So um, we, we do what we can to help out here and there uh, with our neighbors and keep making sure everybody around us are, are safe and get what they need. And I hope that everybody else is doing that. Yeah. Well, it's encouraging to hear stories of people who are doing just that, looking beyond their own household and their own needs to, to others around us. So that's encouraging to hear. Well, let's talk about Radio Cab. Uh, first of all, tell us a little bit of the history of Radio Cab, and then I want to talk about what you all are doing during this season. Well, Radio Cab was formed by uh, a vast group of individuals back in 1946. So this is our 74th year of being a what I like to call a true community partner in, in the Portland metropolitan area. Um, you know, giving service of transportation to to all aspects of society, and um, and by that I mean. It, I, I was a driver for, for a decade before I moved into the role I'm at now. Mm-hmm. I, in, in any given time, I could drive a vice president of Nike to the airport, and my very next call might be a homeless man on the uh, side of I-5 going to a DHS hearing. So we really have a full, full spectrum view of society as a whole. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and our drivers see everything, um, and it's a it's a blessing and a curse at times. Yeah, I'm um, sure that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but we also have—I'll uh, tell you—our drivers are so amazing. Um, I would say about a third of them are have stayed out there working hard, uh, which is good because there's not enough business to to require all of our drivers to be out there. Um, but a lot of them have uh, any type of health issue that might. Uh, make it so they shouldn't be out there. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, so we've been out uh, doing what we can. Um, we've shifted our business a little bit, um, obviously, from passenger travel to delivery services. We do a lot of medical transportation, uh, delivering blood, medicine, that type of thing, um, essential services to, by definition. But, uh, yeah, we're trying to, trying to stay busy. For sure. Well, you guys have been a part of our community for many decades, so you really are just that part of our community, and so you're part of the fabric of the community. I know one of the challenges uh, these days, I would imagine, for your drivers is maintaining a uh, an environment where people are safe, uh, they're traveling where they need to go, or their goods are being transported where they need to go. What steps do you all take to assure the safety of your cargo or passengers during this season? So we do quite a few things. We right from the beginning we uh, were able to acquire quite a bit of uh, uh, disinfectant wipes and, and cleaning supplies to ensure that all our drivers had an ample supply. Um, we've also uh, done what we can to obtain as much PPE as possible for our drivers. We've worked with the health systems in the Portland area to acquire some of that stuff, although they're not really willing to give it to cab drivers. But we've we've finagled what we can. So almost uh, well, all of our drivers have PPE available. We've also installed um, uh, separators. We basically took shower curtains, cut them in half, and installed them in the cabs to, mm-hmm. to have some separation from the from the driver and the passenger. Uh, and then, you know, when this hit, we knew business was going to drop. Um, we took 
uh, quite a few of our call takers out of our dispatch center, and they're now working uh, to disinfect cabs 24-7. They're, they're running cabs through there and giving them a deep clean uh, just nonstop. Um, so we're making sure that we clean in between every passenger, every delivery, and are constantly doing that. Um, and that's about all we can do. Uh, yeah. Just make sure that we're keeping our side of the road clean, I guess, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's important to point out that radio cab in uh, the what the procedure you just described in sanitizing cabs between every fare to ensure that they're clean and disinfected, that's not possible in, and this is me saying this, not possible with some of the ride-sharing services that are available. So at least, you know, in this case, there's a consistent procedure uh, where they guarantee that that kind of uh, care is is being taken. Now, I know that you all are not just transporting people. You're delivering prescriptions. You're delivering groceries, meals, any other type of necessity, uh, as well as people. So this is a, a shift in, I suppose, the kinds of uh, things that you're transporting, um, but still available to serve here in the metro area. For sure. And, um, you know, it's... It's what one thing, one one other service that we can do to help provide a good uh, community, you know, health situation. So everybody gets what they need, and and we've dropped the rates on all our delivery stuff. You know, we've always done delivery, um, but we just knew that we need to increase our availability and our ability to do more delivery, and at a better price um, to make sure that those people who really need it and you know, there's people on fixed incomes that didn't see this coming and are, are really hurting. So. We wanted to make sure that we were able to at least meet them halfway, and and so we've done that um, with our new uh, delivery price structures and and uh, whatever we can do. Oh, that's just amazing! Now, for listeners who are interested in delivery or um, uh, for personal pickup or, or whatever you know they're they're looking for, uh, knowing that you all are prepared for this pandemic to transport in safety, how do they communicate with you? I need a cab, and where to go? Well, there's always the old school way of 503-227-1212, or they can go to radiocab.net, or they can even download our app, um, and it's available in the app store and, and uh, whatever other way you get your app, just Radio Cab Portland. Um, so there's multiple ways to get a hold of us, um, and we're always available 24-7. Well, that is really good to know because, you know, the fact that we're socially distanced, for some of us, we might rely, might have relied on someone to transport us to medical appointments, for example. Well, that may not be possible because we can't associate together um, as we once did. So knowing that Radio Cab is available, the lengths to which you have gone to make it safe for your drivers and passengers uh, can give us a, a, a bit of peace of mind if we need to uh, to be transported or have something uh, brought to us. Well, Darren, I appreciate the long history that Radio Cab has had in our community and the commitment that you've made to continuing to bri- provide that service. And I hope our listeners will take uh, full advantage of the opportunity uh, to support your business as you support our community. Well, I appreciate that, Georgine. Thank you so much for talking with us. I appreciate it. And stay safe. Yeah, you do as well. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Again, it's, it's important to us when we have advertisers who support this kind of radio. Um, we want you to know who they are and how you can support them as well. And again, Radio Cab is sanitizing their cabs between every fare. They're ensuring that their vehicles are cleaned and disinfected regularly. And because they are a business structured as they are, they can do that. Uh, it's not always possible in other uh, other um 
structured businesses. They have discounted their delivery rates in order to help. That's a very generous thing. And they'll deliver prescriptions, groceries, meals, any type of necessity, and of course, people as well. Radio Cab, please keep that in mind and support their business as you're moving about the, the, the area and let others know as well. We want to make sure our small businesses and those who have been in our community for many years uh, will continue to serve uh, once this pandemic has passed. So, again, appreciate Darren Campbell. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk with Tim McGrath. He is the author of James Monroe, A Life. Now, you may think you know America's fifth president, but I certainly learned a great deal in this uh, this new biography, and we'll talk with Tim McGrath about that when he joins us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you may have gathered by now, I love history. And the book we're going to talk about here in just a few moments is one of those books that is a must read if you want to better understand some of the founders of this great republic. Well, among the extraordinary group of early Americans who became known as the Founding Fathers, James Monroe may be the least recognized. You know the name, but who is he and what did he do? But with a remarkable range of his service to the nation, which I was surprised to learn, and his extraordinary skill in shepherding the young nation through one of its most perilous periods, he and his achievements find new resonance and relevance in our time. Well, now drawing on newly available primary sources, acclaimed biographer and historian Tim McGrath, he presents the first biography of the fifth president in more than a decade, James Monroe, A Life. Well, James Monroe now receives the vibrant, full-scale biography that many say he deserves based on a trove of newly available documents from one of our most talented and authoritative biographers. It is a fascinating tome. Says the Wall uh, rather, Kirkus, um, a solidly researched history presented with verve and gusto. The Wall Street Journal says McGrath's descriptions are vivid, his commanders three-dimensional, and the Washington Post said McGrath keeps us transfixed. We're all looking for something that's edifying and educating during this time of the pandemic. And I would recommend this book, James Monroe, A Life. Well, Tim McGrath is a one-time or rather a two-time winner of the Commodore John Barry Book Award, as well as the author of the critically acclaimed biography, John Barry, An American Hero in the Age of Sail, and Give Me a Fast Ship, the Continental Navy and America's Revolution at Sea recipient of the Samuel Elliott Morrison Award for Naval Literature. He lives outside Philadelphia. And joins us today as he's sheltering in place to talk about his latest, James Monroe, A Life. Tim McGrath, thank you so much for joining us. Well, Georgine, thank you for having me in the kind words. How's the weather in Oregon? You know, we've had very nice hot weather and we have some kind of cloudy weather, which is more typical at this season here in uh, in this area. But we're all grateful just to be uh, working and safe. and <laughs> So no complaints. Isn't How about that you? True. Absolutely. <laughs> Pleasant day here in the east. Well, this is a fascinating book, uh, J- James Monroe. Now, I thought I knew um, James Monroe. I thought I knew about his contribution to the country, the role he played in the early days. But I've discovered that I knew far less than I imagined. Well, let me just ask you, what inspired you to take on James Monroe? Uh, I was surprised to learn uh, that he was one of the people who held a wide range of roles that I was completely unaware of. What inspired you? I think it was mainly because when I was seven years old, he was my favorite president, Georgine. I had been to Valley Forge, and he had spent uh, the winter there. I found out that he had been seriously wounded as a teenage lieutenant the year before in Trenton. And I'd gotten a kid's book over there about uh, 
when his name popped up as a potential biography, I said, well, that would be fun to do. As a history major, I knew his role as president and in Madison's uh, uh, cabinet. But boy, Georgine, I had no idea mm-hmm. to get into the depth and breadth of this. I didn't know enough about James Monroe to hurt me, I found out. And, uh, you know, a 50-year career uh, as a soldier, diplomat, politician, he held more positions than any president before him or since. He was the most partisan of politicians as a congressman and senator. If he was alive today, he'd be on MSNBC or Fox News every afternoon, depending on what the issue was, and uh, joyfully wrote uh, rebuttals to any Hamilton or Federalist policies in the Jefferson-influenced or Times-financed papers, and cabinet secretary of state, and then secretary of state and secretary of war. He's grown well beyond the Jefferson agrarian Republican ideals and looking at what the country needs to get through the War of 1812, but also then to grow as a country. So ideas like a standing army and a national bank that were an anathema to him just years before, he sees as necessities in order to not just get the United States as a strong country. You know, it's interesting, you point out that he was a strong partisan for much of his career, but as president, he adopted Washington's nonpartisan approach, and in fact, he ushered in what came to be known, I learned from your book, um, an era called the uh, the era of good feelings. So there was a transformation, when he took on the role of commander-in-chief, of chief executive, uh, he, at least to some degree, jettisoned his partisan fervor for the sake of the nation. Is that a fair description? Yep. It sure is. It's a good one, too, Georgine. I think he, uh, you know, we, we, we know, uh, we've come to know his whole presidency as the heir of good feelings. It really was only about the first two years. He had a couple of severe crises, the Panic of 1819, which was the equivalent of the Great Depression, and the Missouri Compromise, where we're almost ready to go to the admission of the slave state. But, uh he takes a, three tours in his presidency and uh, a very extended one as soon as he's uh, inaugurated through the northern uh, states. And it's a Federalist paper that calls it the era of good feelings. You know, he's done so much to do things to bring it together. It was interesting. He would adopt Federalist policies, but he wasn't about to bring in Federalist leaders. Federalist members, sure, but he wasn't going to bring the major people in because he didn't want to offend the Republican leaders of the day, but he's a pretty astute politician, and he really comes this close to eliminating partisanship, and what actually undoes it is uh, his resounding re-election, and, uh, and things start to fall apart within the Republican Party, even in his own cabinet. At one point, there's four cabinet members that think they'll be the next president, <laughs> but uh, he, he really he, he comes this close. It's something. I, one of the measures for me of a good biography is uh, whether or not um, all facets of uh, an individual's life is fairly portrayed. And uh, you point out that like many other um, of the other founding fathers, Monroe embodied the contradictions and failures of his age regarding slavery, his views of uh, Native Americans and so on. So you present a balanced picture of this man who made a significant contribution. He, on the one hand, was personally opposed to slavery uh, and thought that he could postpone what ultimately would would be a civil war in this country, and did with the uh, Monroe Compromise. Um, But 
was unwilling to make the, the hard decisions necessary in order to put an end to it. But he also um, was part of that movement to see uh, former slaves or slaves repatriated back to Africa, for which uh, one area in particular was named for him. Can you give us a little bit of that, uh, that history, that facet of his leadership? Sure, that's a terrific question, and it was one of the things that prompted me jumping into this was to learn more about this. He does have, uh, uh, obviously, a very duplicitous role in this. In fact, uh, as governor in 1800, uh, he has to execute uh, enslaved men who were part of Gabriel's Rebellion. Website. Eve's rebellion plan that, that probably would have uh, equaled Nat Turner's were not for the fact that a, a severe thunderstorm uh, throws everything all, all Gabriel's plans awry. And he writes, uh, after about 10 of the men have been executed, he writes this very plaintive, almost metaphysical cry to Jefferson, and where to stay the hand of the executioner. And Jefferson writes back immediately and says, that is the question that we have to come up with. But then in the next paragraph, he goes right to politics, and he says, we should stay the hand now because it's going to start costing me votes in the mid-Atlantic and the northern states. He believes himself to be a benign master. If oh. one can, you, 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 you question like that in, in, in our times. Uh, one of his uh, enslaved persons is Sally Hemings' sister, uh, Parthenia, that they call Tina. And people believe that Jefferson sold her to, Madison, to Monroe because uh, he owned her husband. Um, when he's president, he sends the Navy out to intercept uh, slave traders and have the Africans confined below, just you know, inhumane way to be returned to Africa. And he's a uh, founding member of the American Colonization Society, whose goal is that we can repatriate you know, free African-Americans and freed African-American enslaved back to Africa, which when you think about it logistically is how the heck, what were they thinking? Yeah. <laughs> um, at one point, he's talking to Jefferson about, you know, enslaved who have rebelled. Wouldn't it be better to, can we find, it's almost like he's coming up with the Oklahoma's Indian Territory. Can we come up with some place that we can send them and not execute and it's constantly this. Uh, as I said, he believes in self-benign. Uh, one of the things that I was very lucky with was that uh, we've always thought that he never freed any of his slave persons. And lo and behold, about a year ago, the, in 1831, he did free one of them, a man named Peter Marks. Uh, but the, as, as noble as his ideas are, as much as he brags and is happy about how, how we're eliminating the slave trade at, at sea, his views on the evils of slavery stop at his property line. Yeah, and yeah. as Sarah Bond Harper, who is the uh, who was the executive director of his Highland estate, put it to me, you know, you can really bring it down to the sentence that when he needed money, he sold slaves, and when he had money, he bought them. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about the book, James Monroe, A Life, by my guest, Tim McGrath. Excellent book if you're looking for a good read. And, of course, we can always uh, can always buy things online if you can't get out to purchase them. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back in just a few moments. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Tim McGrath, two-time winner of the Commodore John Barry Book Award, as well as the author of the critically acclaimed biography, John Barry, an American Hero in an Age of Sail, and Give Me a Fast Ship, the Continental Navy, and America's Revolution at Sea. He's the recipient of the Samuel Elliott Morrison Award for Naval Literature. He lives outside Philadelphia, where he is sheltering in place, as are we. We're talking about his latest book, James Monroe, A Life. Now, I was surprised to learn that James Monroe was um, the only uh, one of the only founding fathers to hold such a wide range of roles, Revolutionary War soldiers. Soldier, delegate to the Continental Congress, ambassador to Britain and France, senator, governor, secretary of war, secretary of defense, and president of the United States. It is a fascinating uh, biography told very well uh, with uh, some new, a, a trove of newly available documents. Now let's talk about the new sources that you had access to that give, um, that bring new life and perspective to the life of James Monroe. Thank you, Georgina. Again, thank you for the kind words. Uh, as I said, I think the, the most wonderful discovery in terms of as a writer and and studying his history was to find this document that had been actually literally down the street at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and was found by one of the historians and uh, archivists uh, at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello last year. And I was like, boy, how did we the way it was filed? It was actually Mm -hmm. filed uh, obscurely under uh, Monroe's uh, son-in-law, who was the executor of his will and who put the papers in place to have Peter Marks freed. Um, Some of the other documents uh, had just been not not looked at or or paid much attention to, and and I found those of interesting. I'll tell you one of the, the most thrilling documents to find was in his own biography and in a couple of letters. And that was when he was uh, first ambassador to France. And it involves his wife, Elizabeth Courtright Monroe. She came from a very well-respected society family in New York. Monroe was marrying up. And Georgine, she really is the Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis of the founding first ladies. She was a, uh, as beautiful a woman as Jacqueline Kennedy or Michelle Obama. Uh uh, very talented, uh, certainly not as outgoing as as, uh, as Mrs. Obama uh, is, uh, kind of reticent, kept her cool, but she possessed a great deal of courage. And the story that pushed me into doing a biography about her husband is one day is at the end of the reign of terror in France. Uh, she has, she's in her 20s, and she has the coach cleaned and gets dressed in her finest clothes and gets some uh, supplies, bottles of wine and food, and has herself ridden over to the prison where Lafayette's wife is waiting for the chopping block. Both her mother and sisters had been beheaded. And so when she hears the turnkey coming up the stairs to get her, she thinks this is her turn. And instead, outside where Mrs. Monroe greets her, Monroe and Lafayette knew each other during the war and were very good friends. And just this emotional reunion, Monroe knows as a diplomat, he can't do anything, but his wife says, well, we should start something, and this is what she does. And it's the first step that the Monroes take in getting uh, Adrian Lafayette freed and then safely out of France. 
And uh, reading that about uh, Elizabeth Monroe, I was like, oh, yeah, we go with this one. <laughs> yes, that's absolutely lady. And the, fascinating. The, the, the frustration is that their letters, Monroe burned their correspondence when she died. So that's extremely frustrating. But enough people wrote about her to give you a really strong idea of just the heart and dignity that, that this woman had. You make the point that Monroe um, didn't have the gravitas of Washington, Jefferson's eloquence, Madison's political genius, uh, or at least to the same degree, um, but that he was uh, Thomas Jefferson's lifelong best friend and protege, uh, that he um, had a falling out with Washington later in life um, because Washington had recalled him as ambassador to France, but he had a close association relationship um, with Washington. He, He just has a fascinating background with such breadth and depth and connection with so many of the founders that we uh, that we are familiar with and admire, flaws um, aside. Yeah, Jefferson was his mentor, and uh, when he leaves the Continental Army, he goes to meet Jefferson, who's and Jefferson invites him to study law under him. I mean, can you imagine going to the Thomas Jefferson Law School, and you're an attorney, you would know, uh, you know, how much, what it would be like to learn law from so brilliant a mind. They often said that Monroe, uh, you know, did not possess, in fact, some people like Aaron Burr were very judgmental about his lack of intelligence. And, you know, research proves that not further from the truth. But they said, if your two best friends are Jefferson and Madison, you're not going to be the brightest guy in the room, you know. And Monroe made no qualms about that or no claims about it. But what everyone agreed from on either side of the political spectrum was that he was a man of the best judgment, that uh, he really thought things through. Uh, and and that was what uh, one of the reasons why, you know, Washington didn't know that at the time and Monroe probably didn't possess it, but certainly Jefferson and Madison knew his talents and his skills. He almost reminds you of the old war horse in the book of Job, you know, that line, he mm. cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. And that pretty much sums up Monroe's life and his service to his country. <laughs> what a great analogy. Um, he was uh, Jefferson's special envoy to France. He helped to negotiate the Louisiana Purchase that almost doubled the size of the United States at the time. He um, was there at the sacking of the White House, rode through the city um, to rally troops and volunteers. He was instrumental in bringing uh, about the Missouri Compromise. We're all familiar with the Monroe Doctrine. He had significant influence um, and yet didn't have, as I mentioned earlier, the same gravitas. But this brings to life um, this individual's whose name is lesser known, but whose accomplishments are really quite remarkable. No, I agree. And I think that was what was the most fun with this. And the the, uh, the experts in Virginia, Dan Preston, who's in charge of his papers, uh, Scott Harris in charge of the museums uh, with Mary Washington University, including James Monroe's, and uh, Sarah Bon Harper down at uh, Highland, his estate near uh, Washington's at Monticello in Charlottesville, have been so generous with their time and their staffs were just terrific. That no question was too dumb, and uh, and, and and nor was it too late in the day. I, I, I was really blessed. And with other institutions as well, the different historical societies, the New York Public Library, places that have his papers, the Library of Congress, and so forth. It, it just, it was a lot of fun to learn more about this guy. And, you know, you, you still find yourself 
in our time, you know, looking at all these accomplishments and then having to reconcile that with mm-hmm. the fact that this man owned people. Yeah. And, you know, we continue to try to, you know, figure out how all this is going to, to go down. Uh, I think Annette Gordon-Reed put it best when she just talked about you have to accept them for their times and what they did and at the same time realize that something is is beyond our conception as, as human beings in this century. Yeah, absolutely. As a descendant of slaves, I think that's an apt way to put it. I wish we had more time, but I will say to our listeners that this is a great biography. And if you're looking for something uh, to read during this time when you might have a little more time, let me encourage you to uh, consider James Monroe, A Life. It's published by Random House and is currently available. Tim McGrath, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really enjoyed you and the book, so appreciate it. Same here, Georgine. I hope you and your family and staff and your listeners all stay safe and uh, healthy through this crisis. Thank you, and the same to you. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Once again, the title of the book, James Monroe, A Life, published by Random House. You will be fascinated, surprised, and, well, a little better educated. We're going to take a break for news and traffic at the top of the hour, and we will be back, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, second hour of today's program. Glad to have you with us. Well, as many of you know, Kate Brown, the governor of the state of Oregon, advised all large gatherings through at least the end of September to be canceled or postponed. Now, with that said, we're sad to announce that we're unable to proceed with Gospel Sing Live this year. It would have been our second annual event. Well, if you've purchased a Gospel Sing Live ticket, you'll be receiving an email with further details within the next few days. You don't need to call the station because, quite frankly, we're not there. Uh, We look forward to seeing you at Gospel Sing Live next year. Make note, on Friday, August the 20th, 2021. Now, if the Lord wills and we live, we'll be there with Mark Lowry and Greater Vision. So mark your calendars. We're not canceling. We're simply postponing gospel sing live we're very disappointed that we're not going to be able to be together this year we just have something to look forward to for next year so again the date august 20th 2021 with mark lowry and greater vision so we're going to have the same lineup of great southern gospel guests well dr fauci is warned of serious consequences if states reopen before meeting the coronavirus checkpoints we'll talk about what oregon is looking for in just a few minutes he warned in testimony tuesday before the senate health committee that reopening the economy before certain checkpoints set up by the white house coronavirus recovery plan are met could bring serious consequences as i have said many times publicly what we have worked out is a guidance framework for how to open America again, the doctor said. Well, the hearing that featured Dr. Fauci, one of the most prominent faces of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, as well as three other top administration health officials, began with Chairman Senator Lamar Alexander, a Republican out of Tennessee, making clear that he believes stay-at-home orders cannot be a long-term plan. It's uh, the biggest congressional hearing since the coronavirus crisis began. Testimony uh, continued throughout the afternoon, and this was uh, held remotely. Well, a long list of religious leaders have signed on to a letter sent Tuesday requesting that Congress' next coronavirus relief package include legal immunity for religious organizations reopening with an onslaught of new regulations surrounding the pandemic. 
We've already been hearing liability protection for businesses reopening. Now these churches are also looking for similar relief. There's been a notable decrease in pediatric vaccine orders across the U.S. since mid-March. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention wrote in a recent report that highlighted how the coronavirus pandemic has affected vaccination rates in children across the country. The CDC said that the drop might result in outbreaks for otherwise preventable viruses among children. And the National Park Service is testing public access with limited reopenings across the country as the coronavirus pandemic continues. Select parks in South Dakota, Indiana, Nevada, Washington, Kentucky, California, and Utah are once again welcoming visitors, albeit with restrictions and partial services. President Trump on Tuesday gave his backing to Tesla CEO Elon Musk, calling on California to allow him to reopen his plant in the northern part of the state despite concerns over safety due to the coronavirus pandemic. And Bill Gates says he warned then-President-elect Trump in December of 2016 about the risks of a pandemic in the U.S., according to the Wall Street Journal. The Journal reported that Gates explained the risks of a pandemic to all the 2016 presidential candidates, urging them to make it a national priority. Hmm. At least three children in Connecticut are being treated for a mysterious inflammatory condition that's likely linked to the novel coronavirus. A New York state government and local government um, nationwide cannot solve a public health crisis like coronavirus by creating a public safety crisis with the release of inmates, the president of the Correction Officers Benevolent Association said earlier this week. And Tina Fey announced that more than $115 million was raised towards supporting New Yorkers impacted by the coronavirus during a virtual telethon that was held on Monday. And as the coronavirus spread across the globe, a crucial question has emerged. After recovering from an infection, are people immune? Because the virus is so new, the answer isn't fully understood. So don't assume anything. And a large study of more than 1,400 COVID-19 patients has revealed the controversial coronavirus treatment. Hydroxychloroquine yielded no benefits for patients. American universities, pharmaceutical, and other healthcare uh, firms are being targeted by Chinese and Iranian hackers in the midst of the coronavirus crisis, according to reports. You've heard this, the uh, statement, don't let any crisis go to waste. Well, they're taking that to heart. Thank you, left. Well, the, the cyber attacks have been so aggressive that some U.S. officials view them as tantamount to war because they may have hurt research into COVID-19 vaccine, according to the Wall Street Journal. The FBI and Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, the cyber branch of the Department of Homeland Security, issued a statement on Wednesday saying that Beijing is sponsoring widespread cyber attacks intended to steal vaccine research. The CIA reportedly believes China tried to stop the World Health Organization from sounding the alarm to other countries about the coronavirus outbreak in January as it worked to stockpile medical supplies from around the world, including the United States. And Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said Wednesday that Congress and the White House may need to act further to pull the U.S. out of the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression and avoid the coronavirus-induced recession from becoming prolonged. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics recently confirmed that grocery prices across the nation increased by 2.6 percent in April, accounting for the largest one-month increase in this particular index since February of 1974. And Amazon, which has come under intense scrutiny for its own employees, or rather from its own employees and lawmakers over worker safety during the coronavirus pandemic, is now being pressed by 13 state attorneys, states attorneys general 
over how it's keeping employees safe. And former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort has been transferred to home confinement after he sought the transfer due to health risks in prison from coronavirus. Manafort, 70, was serving his sentence at FCI Laredo, a low-security federal prison in Laredo, Pennsylvania. And coronavirus infection in children may not start with a cough, researchers warn in a new study. The small study published in the journal Frontiers in Pediatrics says the gastrointestinal symptoms, as well as a fever and exposure to coronavirus, could indicate COVID-19 infection in children. And let me repeat that so that we uh, know what to look for. According to this research, they warn in this study that the, um, uh, the coronavirus infection in children may not start with a cough. Now, it might, but it might not. The small study published says that uh, gastrointestinal systems, as well as a fever and exposure to coronavirus, could indicate COVID-19 infection in children. So keep that in mind as you're watching your little ones. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Fauci, the face of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, warned in testimony on Tuesday before the Senate Health uh, Committee that reopening the economy before certain checkpoints set up by the administration could result in serious consequence. Depending on the dynamics of an outbreak in a particular region, he says, state, city or area, that would really determine the speed and the pace with which it one does reenter or reopen. If some areas, cities, states, or what have you, jump over these barriers, checkpoints, and prematurely open up without having the capability of being able to respond effectively and efficiently, my concern is that we will start to see little spikes that might turn into outbreaks. Now, this is no doubt what Rand Paul was referring to. He's making a recommendation about the future of opening up America. Well, Fauci warned that prematurely lifting coronavirus restrictions, closing schools and businesses and limiting travel would lead to suffering and death and turn the clock back instead of going forward. When asked by Senator Patty Murray, right out of uh, Washington, what could happen if areas do ignore the checkpoints, Fauci said the consequences could be really serious. Further, when asked by Senator Elizabeth Warren if the virus was under control, Fauci said it is not. Right now, it depends on what you mean by containment. Um, Nothing in the virus is completely under control. So when you look at the dynamics of new cases, even though some are coming down, the curve looks flat with some coming down. Uh, So I think we're going in the right direction, but the right direction does not mean we have by any means total control of this outbreak, which is kind of a foolish question from a mature adult referring to a pandemic. But nonetheless, um, one looks, I suppose, favorable to one's constituents in these circumstances. Well, there's new coronavirus data that shows that West Salem is a hot spot, plus more infections in Oregon's hard-hit neighborhoods. We'll tell you more about that when we return from the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we will take a break, but we'll be back in just a few moments. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, apparently... Um, New coronavirus data shows that West Salem is a hot spot for the COVID-19. Plus, there are more infections in Oregon's hard-hit neighborhoods. An outbreak at a senior home in West Salem produced the single largest weekly spike of reported infections throughout Oregon. That's according to an analysis of newly released data, according to Oregon uh, Oregonian Live. Um, the number of coronavirus infections reported uh, in the 97304 zip code more than doubled from 30 to 63 for the week ending Sunday. Fully 41 residents, workers, or close contacts linked to Prestige Senior Living, Orchard Heights, 
an assisted living and dementia care center have been infected with the virus, according to the state report. Four people tied to the Polk County community have died. Well, the data released on Tuesday by the Oregon Health Authority showed detailed counts of 2,805 of the 3,268 infection identified through Sunday captured about 86% of all cases. The newsroom was unable to pinpoint 410 new infections by zip code compared to the previous week's results, however. The zip codes, uh, I should say six zip codes in East Portland, Gresham, and Troutdale added a combined 86 cases since last week, an increase of 22%, and that raised the total infections in those uh, Multnomah County neighborhoods to 478. Again, we're talking about infections and not um, fatalities. The zip codes are 97233, 97230, 97236-97060-97080-97030. Meanwhile, three zip codes in Marion County saw an increase of 46 infections since last week, an increase of 19%. Total infections in those areas rose up to 283 for the zip codes running north from Salem to Jervis to Woodburn. And the latest report for May the 13th in the state of Oregon, half of all Americans have canceled their summer plans due to COVID-19, which is sort of stating the obvious. But to date, there have been 130 deaths due to COVID-19 in the state of Oregon. And of those who have been tested, 79,595, 76,312 have been tested negative. So that's good news. In the state of Washington, the death toll, 962 Uh, And of those tested, 256,000 who have been tested, 238,000 were not, um, were negative, I should say. Well, the popular Hood to Coast relay will not be held this year due to COVID-19, race organizers announced earlier today. Uh, What power does the governor have during a state of emergency in Oregon? Well, a a professor of law explained the power she's using during the coronavirus pandemic. You can find that at KGW-TV on their website in some detail, and it's rather interesting to consider what power she uh, has under these circumstances. And according to a survey, half of all Americans have canceled their summer plans, as I mentioned. In their weekly report, Oregon Health Authority provided the number of cases by zip code. I made a brief reference to them. That might be an interesting reading for you as well. And Oregon State University is getting ready to resume in-person classes later this summer and in time for fall term at its Corvallis and Bend campuses pending approval by the state. Well, more than 30 counties in Oregon have applied for phase one of Governor Kate Brown's plan to reopen Oregon. Counties that are approved are going to be allowed to begin phase one of uh, reopening on Friday. That's the day after tomorrow. In phase one of the governor's plan, restrictions will be uh, eased for restaurants and bars for sit-down service. Requirements include six feet of social distancing, a limit of groups to parties of 10 or fewer, food and drink consumption must end by 10 p.m., and workers are required to wear masks. Barbers, salons, and massage businesses, requirements include social distancing, appointment only, and a personal protective equipment and customer list. Again, they're monitoring who's connecting with whom. Gyms and fitness centers, requirements include a maximum gathering limit, social distancing and sanitization, and in-person gatherings up to 25 people, no travel. Well, even as restrictions are eased, Governor Brown said social distancing will need to continue. All counties must meet the following prerequisites before they'll be approved for phase one. These are counties. 
You need to show a decline in COVID-19 or have fewer than five hospitalizations, have sufficient COVID-19 testing and contract tracing capabilities, establish plans for the isolation and quarantine of new cases, have the hospital capacity to handle any surge in COVID-19 cases, and have enough personal protective equipment for healthcare workers. After counties are approved for phase one, they have to remain in that phase for a minimum of 21 days before they're eligible to begin phase two. In addition, if any county, once they've entered phase one, begins to show significant increase in COVID-19 cases or community spread, that county may have to move from phase one, rather, to a stay-at-home order. Uh, Independent from county um, phase one reopening beginning on um, May the 15th, restrictions are going to be eased for child care facilities and some other retail businesses across the state. Child care facilities will be allowed to expand operations and some summer schools, camps and youth programs will be able to resume. There's going to be limitations and special requirements, including social distancing procedures and details in health and safety guidelines for daycares, summer schools, camps and so on. Um, will be finalized, rather, this week, according to the governor's office. Now, other standalone retail businesses across the state, such as furniture stores, art galleries, jewelry shops, and boutiques, will be allowed to reopen beginning the 15th of May if they follow specific guidelines. And this is independent from Phase 1 reopenings. Now, some statewide restrictions were lifted earlier this month. On the 1st of May, non-emergency medical procedures were again allowed And on the 5th of May, some state parks and day-use areas uh, opened up as well. Well, the specifics of Phase 2, as well as Phase 3, haven't been released yet, but uh, some specifics of Phase 2 will be guided by data collected from Phase 1 and will include expanded gathering sizes, allowing some people to return to work, and allowing some visitation to care facilities. Phase three, which focuses on large gatherings, won't begin until reliable treatment or prevention of COVID-19 is widely available. And we're told that that's, uh, that may not be possible until the end of, um, of the year. So we'll follow closely what's actually happening and when phase three is even being considered. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Gospel Sing Live has to be postponed until 2021 because of the governor's uh, directive. And that's likely going to be the case for most events that were planned through this summer. As I mentioned, um, five Oregon counties are pushing full speed ahead to reopen at the end of this week, despite sudden surges in their reported coronavirus cases. They are Clatsop, Jefferson, Polk, and Umatilla counties. Each have their own known COVID-19 infections, more than or seen them double in the last two weeks, even as statewide restrictions aimed at slowing the spread of the virus remain in place. Marion County, which has Oregon's highest rate of coronavirus uh, infections, reported nearly 270 new cases during that time, more than any other county, including the Portland metro area's three counties. Yet elected and public health officials in all five counties said that they meet the infection criteria that was issued by the governor to enter the state's phase one for reviving public life and the economy, which begins on Friday. On their own, the state's guidelines are weaker than opening up America guidance circulated by the White House and promoted by Dr. Fauci, but uh, who on Tuesday, I should say, warned U.S. senators against moving to open too quickly. But as I mentioned, the Oregon criteria will allow some of these counties, if approved, to on Friday uh, to open up. One other casualty of all of this is that Boy Scouts have been banned from planting American flags on veterans' graves for Memorial Day due to the coronavirus. 
A longtime uh, Memorial Day weekend tradition to honor veterans is now canceled. For decades, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, and other groups have devoted part of the holiday to place small American flags at the graves of veterans and those who have given the ultimate sacrifice as a way to honor our country's war heroes. Yep, this year, the Department of Veterans Affairs has prohibited public events at the sites because of COVID-19. The Boy Scouts and other groups have been barred from carrying out the mass flag placement, so you won't uh, have the opportunity to see them as you uh, may be driving by these areas, trying to get out of your homes for a moment or two. Well, it's uh, it's uh, it's sad. One Suffolk County executive, uh, Steve Ballone, says, if you can't figure out a way to make sure we are placing flags at the graves to honor them, then something is seriously wrong. And again, a lot of disappointment over the fact that this uh, activity won't take place. He went on to say he's the executive director, uh, by the way, of Suffolk County, whose county includes the sprawling Calverton and Long Island National Cemeteries, which hold more veterans than any other military cemetery in the nation, including Arlington National Cemetery. He says he's confident that officials can carry out a plan that would keep the uh, scouts safe. What we're asking the VA to do, rather than have a blanket policy across the country, allow the national cemeteries at the local level to make this determination in conjunction with the local health department. So we may or may not see some flags at some locations. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I need to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that Thursday, we're going to broadcast live. That gives you an opportunity to weigh in on a conversation I'm planning with Rich Jones. He's the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Hillsboro. There are several churches that are suing governors across the country, including here in the state of Oregon, over church attendance. We're going to talk about whether or not the church is being singled out for harassment and how we should respond as followers of Christ when the governing authorities say it's not in your best interest or those of your countrymen for you to congregate. We'll get into that tomorrow and give you an opportunity to weigh in. Really looking forward to broadcasting live for the first time in weeks here on the Georgine Rice Show. Well, George Stephanopoulos asked the former vice president about Tara Reid, and his answer is a reminder of how desperately some Democrats don't want him on the debate stage. In fact, I was listening to conversations earlier in the day making the point that it's actually a benefit for Joe Biden not to be on the campaign trail. Biden, wanting to prove he really is a far left progressive now, announced AOC uh, is on his policy panel. Hmm. Hugh Hewitt explained why uh, Donald Trump should not accept an unfair debate format put together by anti-Trump elites. And in a meandering, um, illogical explanation from Stacey Abrams as to why she believes Biden didn't sexually assault Tara Reid, a direct reversal, 180 degrees from her stance in support of um, the accuser in Kavanaugh's case. She explains what he's accused of doing that he flatly and clearly denied. And I believe his denial speaks not only to who he is, but to who I am. Okay, I'm not sure the logic there, but we'll just leave it at that. Well, the key race was uh, for disgraced Democrat Katie Hill seat in California. I'm referring to the special election, the results of which went all Republican. As of early this morning, Republican Mike Garcia had a 12-point lead with 76% of the vote in. Uh, a few points on the um, election. Democrats have uh, about 30,000 um, uh regulatory advantage. Uh, Hillary won uh, in this area by seven points in uh, 16, and special elections are special. 
Um, don't read too much into them. So, you know, there you go. Uh, Smith has a flawed candidate who mocked Garcia's military service. Uh, general election electorate uh, will be much larger than these early races. So some things to consider we're being told in this face off. And Los Angeles County, stay at home for the next three months. Ten million residents are being held captive by politicians in L.A. County. And according to uh, Lan He Chen, the Fauci guidance is 14 days of declining cases. That's a far more reasonable approach than Newsom's standard of 14 days without a single death. Either way, I don't see L.A. County being shut through August. Citizens of the liberal state just north of California are also finding the Democratic governor is enjoying her power, setting a curfew for businesses that open. That's here in Oregon. Kimberly Strassel points out the virus has really exposed just how much some governors uh, love dictating. Two percent of small businesses may be gone for good when this is all said and done. Well, House Democrats have thrown their support to pot growers in the stimulus, uh, the three trillion dollar stimulus package, specifically minority and women owned businesses. That makes all the difference. Congressman Jody Arrington says, you know, something is suspicious when the word cannabis is used 68 times more than job or jobs combined in an economic stimulus bill. I'm not sure what they're uh, smoking, but whatever socialist euphoria they're feeling will fade fast when it arrives in Washington. And in the Senate from Congresswoman, uh, Congressman, rather, Richard Hudson, I'll be voting no on House Democrats new three trillion dollar one eight hundred or eighteen hundred page job killing boondoggle bill written in Nancy Pelosi's office with no input from Republicans, the Senate or the president. Well, no new pedestrians have died in 58 days in New York. That's the longest stretch since records were kept. So I guess a silver lining in all of this. CNN is reporting that uh, hydroxychloroquine uh, has no benefit at all, but critics say they've missed some key points. The stories claiming the drug did not work were based on sloppy studies that weren't retrospective of past cases, according to Red State. And in another coronavirus story, CNN misled the masses when claiming 68% of Americans say a coronavirus vaccine is needed before returning to normal life. Mediate um, published that story. And by the way, this day in history, never mentioned it. 1981, Pope John Paul II is shot and seriously wounded in St. Peter's Square by Turkish assailant Mehmet Ali Agra. In or rather 1864, the first soldier is buried at what would be uh, become Arlington National Cemetery. 1918, on this day in history, the first U.S. airmail stamp costing 24 cents and featuring a picture of Curtis JN4 biplane is publicly issued. On some of the stamps, the Jenny is printed upside down, making them collector's items. 1940, who would, who would have thought a major mistake would one day become a collector's item? There's a, there's a sermon in that that you could preach that. I'm going to make note on that. Anyway, 1940, in his first speech as British Prime Minister, Winston Churchill tells Parliament, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. 1958, Vice President Richard Nixon and his wife Pat are spat upon and their limousine battered by rocks thrown by anti-U.S. demonstrators in Caracas, Venezuela. 1973, on this day in history, in tennis's first so-called battle of the sexes, a poor effort at it. Bobby Riggs defeated Margaret uh, uh, Court 62-61 in Ramona, California. Billy G. King soundly defeated Riggs at the Houston Astrodome in September. 2003, a new $20 bill is introduced, the first to feature a colorful background.
2009, on this day in history, Pittsburgh Pirates Adam LaRoche and Florida Marlins Ross Glode become the first baseball players to have home runs taken away following a video replay review. James could tell you all about that, I'm sure. 2014, a European court and an important test of the right to be forgotten rules that Google has to amend some of its search uh, results at the request of ordinary people when they show links to outdated, irrelevant information. Well, top Obama administration officials purportedly requested to unmask the identity of former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn during the presidential transition period, according to a list of names from that controversial process made public today. The list was declassified in recent days by Acting Director National Intelligence Richard Grinnell and then sent to GOP Senators Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson, who made the documents public. The roster features top-ranking figures, including then-Vice President Joe Biden, a detail already being raised by the Trump campaign in the bare-knuckle 2020 presidential race, where Biden is now the Democrats' presumptive nominee. The list also includes then-FBI Director James Comey, then-CIA Director John Brennan, then-Director of National Intelligence James Clapper, and Obama's then-Chief of Staff Dennis McDonough. I declassify the enclosed document, which I am providing to you for your uh, situational awareness, Grinnell wrote to the GOP senators in sending along the list. Well, his note was well, was addressed rather to Senators Grassley and Johnson, who had penned a letter to him and Attorney General Bill Barr regarding the declassification of files related to the unmasking process earlier in the day. Grinnell already made the decision to declassify information about Obama administration officials who were involved in the unmasking of Flynn, that's in quotes, whose calls with the former Russian ambassador during the presidential transition were picked up in surveillance and later leaked. His case has uh, returned to the national spotlight at the Department of Justice, moved to dismiss charges against him of lying to the FBI about those conversations, despite a guilty plea that he later sought to withdraw. Entrapment is the word that's now being used to describe it. Well, the Supreme Court's final week of oral arguments for its 2019-2020 term this week included two cases that involve an important religious freedom issue. In a 2012 decision, Hosanna Tabor Lutheran Church and School versus EEOC, the Supreme Court said that federal employment discrimination laws do not apply to cases where churches or religious schools fire a minister. Those new cases provide an opportunity for the court to explain further what this ministerial exception means and how it applies. Well, this exception reflects a very important principle. By protecting the free exercise of religion and prohibiting the government's establishment of religion, the First Amendment requires that churches or religious schools have a different relationship with the government than secular employers. The challenge is where to draw the line. Now, those two cases that were argued on Monday involved fifth-grade teachers in Catholic parish schools whose contracts were not renewed. In one case, Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey Baru, the teacher claimed the decision was based on her age. In the other case, St. James School of uh, versus Beale, the teacher was let go. The school said her substandard teaching performance did not improve. She sued, claiming the real reason was that she had to, to take time off for cancer treatment. In each case, the school said that its teachers play an important religious function and therefore the government should not second-guess such personal decisions. We'll find out um, sometime in the, uh, uh, in the summer, presumably, what their decision or clarification in this case will ultimately be. By the way, the Supreme Court held the combined arguments in the cases by teleconference with justices asking questions in turn. 
Since Hosanna Tabor already recognized that a ministerial exception exists, the argument was about how to define and apply it. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. There was an interesting article in Christianity Today, today, titled This Pandemic Hits Americans Where We're Spiritually Weak. And it begins by recalling a conversation between the writer and a friend uh, who admitted that um, our, we're out of our routine, the stock market is plunged, we imagine millions dying, and that uh, crying uncontrollably and without specific uh, reason was characteristic of what many people are experiencing. We're missing out. Uh, we're, um, and she writes, this virus and economic crisis punch us squarely where our spiritual armor is weakest, mortality, money, and our fear of missing out. Then she refers to 2 Corinthians 7. Paul distinguishes between two kinds of sorrow, a sorrow that leads to death and a godly sorrow. The latter brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves us uh, leaves no regret. Uh, godly sorrow, he writes, produces earnestness, eagerness to repent, and a longing and a readiness to see justice done. The question the church faces now is which kind of sorrow COVID-19 will bring. She writes, we are in the midst of the most widespread societal upheaval that many people alive today have ever experienced. Already our institutions, habits, relationships, and culture are shifting before our eyes. Frank Snowden, author of Epidemics and Society, shared with the New Yorker, epidemics are a category of disease that seem to hold up the mirror to human beings as to who we really are. The question we are facing is not whether we will experience sorrow and change. The question is how. As biblical prophets walked with people through catastrophes, their advice was never to just endure until it ends. Instead, they focused on proactively changing relationships with each other and with God. And that, I suppose, is the challenge for us today as we ride this one out and wait to see what the end ultimately will be. She goes on, as a culture, a cultural anthropologist who grew up in the middle class while United States, um, uh, white United States home, and then lived for much of my adult life in Nicaragua, China, and South Africa. I study the ways cultures adapt and change. Social scientists dub people like me weird, Western, and educated from industrialized, rich, and democratic countries. My home culture is especially weird compared to much of the majority world in our responses to loss and unpredictability. Yes, we weird people have made much um, that will help us against this, uh, against this coronavirus, well-funded uh, research labs, hospitals, and democracy. But dealing with financial, mortal, and daily uncertainties is not our strong suit. This current upheaval slams us against some of the deepest lies and idols. It demands strong muscles that many of us have let atrophy. Identifying how our culture has left us poorly prepared uh, for this sort of event can move us toward the kind of sorrow that produces repentance and justice. She raises some very important um, aspects of what we are all experiencing together. And the fact that we're not just called to endure, but we're called to endure in a way that is honoring to God and strengthens us in our faith and ministers to others. You can find the article online. It's certainly worth reading. This pandemic hits Americans where we're spiritually weak. And maybe you can find yourself among uh, the many words there to describe where we are and what we are called to under these kinds of circumstances and how peculiar it is for most of the world population to experience this kind of loss and uncertainty 
uh, with a kind of prosperity that you and I enjoy. Now, you might say to yourself, my level of prosperity is not significant, but if you look at the world as a whole, most of us would be considered quite wealthy, even the poorest among us. And the fact that we have a safety net is uh, unique in most places around the world. So it's, a, it's an article worth, um, worth reading and certainly considering um, where we're spiritually weak and how these events that we are now living through together, though isolated, might help to strengthen those very areas that have atrophied in and among us. So check that out, Christianity Today Online. Well, as many of you know, and I think it bears repeating, Kate Brown advised all large gatherings through at least the end of September to be canceled or postponed. I'm going to pause for that sigh of, oh, I was so looking forward to, and you could fill in the blanks. With that said, we're sad to announce that we're unable to proceed with Gospel Sing Live this year, which was going to be only our second annual event, the second time of many events in the future. Well, that is still going to be the case. But if you've purchased your Gospel Sing Live ticket, you're going to receive an email with further details within the next few days. So uh, sit tight and wait for that to clarify what's going to happen next. And I'm happy to let you know that we're not canceling Gospel Sing Live. We're postponing it. We look forward to seeing you at Gospel Sing Live next year. We already have a date. It's going to be on Friday night, August the 20th of 2021. With the same guests we had uh, scheduled, we had booked for this time around, Mark Lowry and Greater Vision. So if you are disappointed, uh, you have an opportunity to mark your calendar, August the 20th, 2021, and Mark Lowry and Greater Vision will be in the Salem area for Gospel Sing Live. And again, if you've already purchased your ticket, you're going to receive an email with further details within the next few days. If you don't have email, you will otherwise be contacted uh, so just uh, sit tight and we'll let you know what uh, what's happening at this point moving forward. But again, looking forward to um, August 20th, 2021, if the Lord wills and I live. I hope to see you there at Gospel Sing Live in Salem with Mark Lowry and Greater Vision. I also want to, re- to remind you that on the 15th, and that's coming up, uh, we have some of the uh, more popular musicians in the Christian circles, Lauren Daigle, Lecrae, and others. They're holding a benefit concert to raise money for churches who are at risk of closing due to COVID-19. And this is a phenomenon we haven't talked much about, but there are churches who are struggling because they simply have not um, received the gifts, uh, tithes, and offerings that they're used to from the parishioners who attend. Many of them are struggling and, and simply cannot. Uh, and I would say for those of us who who do have the financial resources, I would encourage you to continue to give to your respective churches so that the work of the ministry can continue. And I would also note that because of our current situation, there are opportunities for the church to minister to people outside the walls of the building that are significant and strategic. So I'm grateful for pastors and teachers and leaders and musicians and others who are taking full advantage of the opportunity afforded us to reach many people who otherwise would not attend uh, the church building. So if you are able, um, please don't forget to give generously as you otherwise would to the church that uh, that you attend on a regular basis. So make note of that. Anyway, they're uh, hosting a conf- concert to help underwrite the cost, and they're, they're uh, offering grants um, to churches who are struggling. And it's said here uh, they're offering $3,000 grants to small churches that are at risk of closing within the next three months. So if you'd like to take part in that, it's uh, hosted by a number of organizations right now, Media, Reach Records, and other uh, organizations who are putting this together. And you can uh, 
Uh, the broadcast will be at togethergeneration.com uh, slash chc, togethergeneration.com chc, and uh, all the important details are there. I'm looking for more information that might be helpful to you. Uh, but for, they say some 42% of pastors said giving was significantly down. And so it's important for us to keep that in mind and we can help churches that are struggling. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office. Hope you'll join us tomorrow. Pastor Rich Jones will join us. We're going to talk about the struggle between churches and governors over church attendance, allowing parishioners to return uh, to the church and whether or not this is a violation of the separation of church and state and the free exercise of religion. So that will be uh, tomorrow and there'll be an opportunity on the program for you to weigh in as we'll be broadcasting live. Yay. For the first time in weeks. Hey, thanks for making the Georgine Rice show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.